That's this noise. <laughs> it's moonlight purring. Wait, what is it called? ASMR? Welcome back to the Bog House. An ASMR podcast. We're switching genres. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to do an ASMR podcast. No, never. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Not intentionally. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I have bronchitis, and so now my voice is, like, really scratchy. Although, is that an ASMR thing? Uh, I mean, to somebody. I know. I have bronchitis. (laughs) Do you like it? Do you like my (coughs) bronchitis? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Okay. So, um... Before we get into uh, what we were leading out from in the last podcast, I mm-hmm. guess we should recap the crazy week that we've yeah, had we had since another then. crazy week um, because my illustrious husband here got on the news. <laughs> yeah, not for anything particularly good. Um, <laughs> I like to say that the two of us are in a contest right now to see who, which of us can get on the most local news because, uh, like. Three weeks ago, I was on the local news because of the fire down the street. And then Mm -hmm. this week... This week, uh, I was on the news because we had our fire department connection, the uh, part of the building where you attach fire hoses to feed the sprinkler systems, uh, stolen. Yeah. You know that big brass fitting that Mm -hmm. you might see outside buildings? Um, How did we find out about this? A couple of weeks ago now, somebody on the neighborhood Facebook group had mentioned that Two of these had been stolen from an area business. I briefly thought at the time, well, uh, we should maybe secure ours, but what are the chances that's going to happen? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, I noticed on our uh, camera uh, feed that uh, in the middle of the day last Friday, uh, a dude with uh, a red beard and a, a scuzzy jacket. Yeah, he's wearing like, um, what do you call those? Timberland boots and a uh, Like a, a Carhartt. Carhartt jacket. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, he, he gets out of a Cadillac, uh, yeah. goes and squats in front of our door for over 15 minutes and then walks away. Um, turns out he lifted this piece that's going to cost us $400 to replace. Mm. Uh, and I went on a little bit of a tear. Uh, I went on Facebook and I went on Reddit. Just it's so cute. Sorry, cute's <laughs> like the wrong word. Um <laughs> Look, Matt is, like, not a very confrontational person. Matt is generally extremely even-keeled. But with this new house, this crazy venture that we've had, I've been witness to several times when Matt's, like, territorial must-protect-domain, like, feelings have come out. And it's really fascinating to watch how you, like, (laughs) transform into, like, the defender of the castle. The defender of the 400 freaking dollars I have to pay to replace <laughs> this thing that we just installed. Yeah, I mean, it's, only, it's been And if it like was just like this junky dude walking around, like, I've, it's a lost cause, right? But this guy got out of a 2012 Cadillac that cost more than both of our cars combined. Right. So I, I sent this to the police. I posted on Facebook and Reddit. And uh, found out that this has been happening up and down 2nd Street uh, in Northern Liberties and Fishtown. These are neighborhoods down in, in Philadelphia. Down in um, dozens of people's um, FDCs, which stands for Fire Department Connections, have been stolen. and Because they're made of brass. Yeah. And so they're expensive. You could scrap them. Or potentially he's selling them to some shady contractor um, and making money that way. And then the contractor is using them 
you know, to give to customers. Yeah. So this uh, ends up with me, you know, working with the police. Then uh, eventually... Um, I tweeted about it and I tagged like one reporter who I know does a lot of stories about weird Philadelphia, Stephanie Farr. Uh, she works for the Philly Inquirer, I believe. And uh, then my post to her got liked by someone at Fox 29. I want to say Chris O'Connell. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he liked a tweet of mine where I'm like, this fucking guy, I'm going to get this asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and so since he liked it, I, I tweeted at him saying, hey, you know, if you want any more information, let me know. And he says, hey, do you have time for an interview? And since Fox 29 is literally down the street from where I work, um, I ran over. It turned out we, we met at a nearby Starbucks because they were uh, getting coffee at the time. Uh, and did a quick interview, which then aired that night, and uh, folks all across Philadelphia saw me <laughs> ranting. I think I said pain in the butt on you network did. television. Matt said pain in the butt on the television. I'm so proud. I could I got not to say be more butt on television. Butt on TV. I'm so proud. So yeah, that that is, uh, I guess, this week's adventure. Yeah, this last well, couple of weeks. And then that was that all happened on the same day. Well, not the the thievery that happened a couple of days beforehand, but Matt's TV appearance happened on the same day that uh, we had a couple of photographers and a model uh, doing a a photo shoot on our construction site. And so Matt and I got some photos taken as well on the construction site. So uh, hopefully we'll have some updated photos on the website and on social media accounts later on this week. No pressure, Mikey, if you hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Give us the fucking photos. Hurry up. No, just kidding. Seriously, no pressure. It's not. It's actually. (laughs) Melissa's just very excited. I'm excited, but I'm not like in a rush. This is not a (laughs) rush thing. There's no hard. This is just something she wants to put on the podcast. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. (laughs) Um, So. Yeah. So uh, this week we are going to take it back to the beginning of the history of um, this property. So this is 103 Callow Hill Street, but of course it wasn't always known as that. Philadelphia is actually a fairly young city in the scheme of human cities. Sure. Because for approximately 13,000 years before Philadelphia was Philadelphia... It was a part of the land that was occupied by the Leni Lenape Native American tribe. Yeah, it's important to talk about the Leni Lenape, uh, which I never know if I'm pronouncing correctly, but uh, I'll roll with it. I think that's right. Leni Lenape. Lenape. Yeah. Is what Wikipedia says. Yeah. And Wikipedia is never wrong. Oh, God. Um, have you seen what Wikipedians look like? They know about the Lenny Lenape. <laughs> um, so um, uh, it, when, when we talk about uh, Philadelphia as the birthplace of freedom, this actually goes way back to the Lenny Lenape. Uh, they were a much more sort of tolerant, freedom-loving group of people mm-hmm. compared to other tribes in the area throughout like the uh, eastern the Americas. seaboard, right? Yeah, and they occupied area around what is uh, modern day Delaware, New Jersey, New York. Uh, well, just coming up to New York, right? Right. They they went up. Uh, it, you get more into Iroquois territory up there, sure. I believe. Um, I'm not from here, so this is all kind of. Um, I didn't learn. I should say, in Australia, when you learn about American history, you totally just start with the Revolutionary War. Like it, you know, you 
tend not to go back into Indigenous tribes, really. There might be like a small discussion of how Indigenous people were wiped out and subjugated and, you know, put into camps. But it's generally the way things are. We get taught what the white history of America is. So I think it's kind of important to acknowledge that there was this tribe that you know, a part of their culture was this uh, idea of um, individual freedom, you know, and 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 even, uh, you know, uh, a greater equality between the sexes even. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's... um, I'm going to pause. Yeah. Because the cat shit. Oh. Well, uh, while Matt's cleaning Moonlight's shit up, um, take a seat. You're in the bog house. (laughs) We were talking about the Lenny Lenape. Right, and how that history often gets overlooked. Right. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate enough that, having grown up in Pennsylvania in the 80s, they, they actually really did a good job of reinforcing that during those early years of school, uh, <laughs> from which I have no memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a really excellent small exhibition about the Lenny Lenape at the Museum of the American Revolution. And you can obviously, you know, learn more about it. There are still members of the tribe. It's not like, is it the Susquehannock tribe that was completely... Susquehannocks were completely wiped out. Right. So there, there is still an active membership in the tribe. And they talk about how part of their customs were that, you know, uh, women owned the land or managed the land that they lived on and would select the chiefs. So women had a lot of power within the Lenny Lenape community. In 1632, uh, some Dutch settlers who had come down from New Amsterdam, uh, present-day New York, of course, mm-hmm. uh, made their way to the shores of what is now uh, Delaware, I think. Right. Lewis Beach, essentially, is where it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking to, you know, establish a new settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and encountered the Lenape. Right. And the Lenape generally a pretty, like, uh, not a warlike uh, territorial tribe, but the Dutch really kind of managed to piss them off. Yeah, they just started nailing these these tin markers up over the uh, the trees that they were claiming as their land, right. that they owned this land. Right. The tin markers had the Dutch East India Company logo on him essentially, and uh, and they were like, "This is ours." And, and this did not go over well. No, well, the Lenape were like, "You don't get to just take land. Like this land is owned by everyone. You don't get to take it." Um, and then the Dutch went even further and started trying to um, force the Lenape to follow their laws, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, things did not go well. There was an altercation and the entire Dutch colony was killed by the Lenape. So the next people who tried to do this after the Dutch were the Swedes, right? Right, right. Just a few years later, because the Dutch were way in over their heads, but the Swedes saw an opening, they made their way to uh, sort of the greater Philadelphia area. Right. So the first kind of um, white European colony, I guess, in in our region um, was called New Sweden and it was started in 1638 mm-hmm. and interestingly where it is in Philadelphia this is so amazing to me <laughs> is like basically exactly where the IKEA is today 
I mean, if you're driving south along the Delaware River from Philadelphia, uh, from the center of Philadelphia, you're going to go past the old Swedes church. Which they built on, you know, I don't know, is that the original church that they built? Is yeah, this? there's there's like the original core church. I, there was probably a, a building before that, like a wood building, and right. then they did a brick building, and right. it's been added on to, but really old building. Mm-hmm. Um, you continue south, and there... And there's the Ikea flying the Swedish flag. Which and- actually... Uh, the colors of the Swedish flag persist today in Philadelphia's flag. Um, right, with our the, city flag. Yeah, the blue and the yellow uh, originate, uh, uh, allegedly, uh, from the Swedish flag. <laughs> so IKEA is basically colonizing all of our houses because our house is certainly fucking full of IKEA furniture. You know, they win and they have delicious meatballs. I mean, it's not even just the store that's in South Philadelphia. IKEA's headquarters... Like their U.S. headquarters is in Conshohocken, right? Like just like of uh, like about half an hour out yeah. into the suburbs. Anyway, yeah. So this sort of happens, but New Sweden it, it doesn't really prosper. It doesn't grow into a proper colony. Um, it sort of fizzles out. Yeah, they don't really have the resources that uh, you're seeing sort of the larger European colonizers. Uh, in are, large are, part because yeah, the Queen of Sweden was like, I don't fucking care. Right, right. She's like, really? There's enough going on at home. Um, You know, at this point in time, uh, everything is just blowing up in Europe. Right. This huge, uh, what what is the 30 30 years years war? war Between like Catholics and Protestants. We covered this period pretty extensively in high school. Actually, as we were doing research for this episode, I suddenly started realizing like I can name all of the monarchs of, you know, Great Britain throughout this entire period because clearly... It's been drummed into my head in, you know, high school history classes. But of course, we have the Reformation where the one church, which is the Catholic Church, is torn asunder by Martin Luther. And uh, we have the Protestant Church then and the Catholic Church, these two separate entities. And they immediately start fighting with each other and uh, create like a whole lot of havoc. And all of these royal houses in Europe are aligning with one or the other and then switching and then killing all the people who were the other. And and it's just like a really terrible shit time for like hundreds of years. <laughs> hundreds. Hundreds. Hundreds of years. I mean, happening yeah right it's like this is this is a really um but it was particularly bad at this time in england particularly everybody knows about henry the eighth who tried to get a divorce and wasn't allowed to get a divorce the pope said no so henry the eighth was like fuck you i'm just gonna start my own church now i'm the pope now i'm the pope now and you know it's not going to be part of the german protestant lutheran tradition and it's not going to be part of the catholic tradition i'm it's going to be the church of england and then you know when he died his very catholic daughter mary bloody mary became the queen and she ordered the slaughter of a whole bunch of Protestants. And then when she died, her younger sister, Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, becomes queen. She's a Protestant, like her dad. And she persecuted the Catholics. So, you know, she went to war with Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic and was imprisoning Catholics and killing Catholics left, right and center. Um, And then when she dies, James I becomes the King of England. He's Catholic. 
So everything just keeps getting reversed over and over and over again. Which is, there's no wonder that all these people are getting on these terrible boats and fleeing into the ocean right. for anything else. Right, right, right. When we talk about like religious persecution in England, like the history of it really goes back to these two fighting factions getting steadily more and more polarized as the pendulum swings more and more wildly. Holy shit, this is like such an allegory for what's happening right I now. I hope not. I hope not as well, but like, I mean, that's that's what happened. So the culmination of this unrest was after James the First, um, which was Charles the First, who you know when he was the king, Oliver Cromwell, who was a Puritan, um, went to war with him, immortalized in the Monty Python song, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England, Puritan. Born in 1599 and died in 1658 <laughs> September. So This is what happens when you grow up in a country where they still put the queen on their currency. <laughs> it's just what happens when you grow up listening to way too much fucking Money Python. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, Oliver Cromwell uh, fights with the king. They have several civil wars. Uh, and at some point, King Charles I has his fucking head cut off. They cut off the head of their king, which is a really fucking big deal. And Oliver Cromwell establishes essentially the modern British system of a constitutional monarchy where you have a parliament and uh, a monarch and the parliament checks the power of the monarch because he felt Charles I had too much power. And this is really important because... It kind of starts what would end up becoming our modern American system of government. Yeah. And uh, I mean, really, why we're going into this background is it, it very directly affects why we're here, where we are recording what we are. Yeah, because around about this time, as a result of all this unrest, there were a whole bunch of people who were basically saying, you know what? Fuck Catholics fuck Protestants, fuck the Church of England. None of these fucking people have given us peace and stability. Um, I'm going to make my own religion. Enter the Quakers, called so because in talking about what they were doing and defending their practices, they would be shaking with just convictions. Uh, they, you know, came up with this idea that was pretty, uh, for want of a better term, revolutionary at the time mm. that... You know, this whole idea that some people are better than others is kind of whack. Let's just get down to it. Everybody is equal. Right. Uh, I'm not going to swear oaths because, I mean, the Jesus guy said don't swear. So I'm not going to tell the king that I swear anything to him. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to bow down to anybody because I actually disagree with the entire system of a hierarchical society. So why should I pay tithe <laughs> to the king? <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is like an extremely radical idea right off the bat. I think it's really interesting that Quakerism was formed uh, around about the mid-1600s. And, you know, Charles I was executed in 1649. So mm -hmm. like right around this time is like when these ideas are becoming a, a philosophy that's sort of institutionalized in an organization. Yeah, a, a huge reactionary response of nonviolence. Right, right, because one of the main precepts, one of the main precepts of Quakerism is sort of a radical passivism. So 
if you're a Quaker, you are not allowed to, quote, engage in any warlike exercise. And this means you're not allowed to own a sword or a gun or a knife for defending yourself. You're not allowed to dress in armor or put on military clothes. You're not allowed to train in a military way. You can't join the army or do martial exercises, even if you're not actually fighting anyone. Which makes it a really big deal when one Admiral Penn's son, a William Penn, in his uh, his 20s... He was... 22. So William Penn was born in 1644, so around about this time. While everything's going on. While everything terrible is going on. And he had, I want to call it like he must have had a real sort of awakening year in 1666. Mm-hmm. People who are history buffs will know that year because it is the year of... The Great Fire of London. Right, exactly. Which was a terrible, terrible conflagration that burnt down hundreds and hundreds of houses in London because there was no such thing as a fire department <laughs> <laughs> or fire regulations or safety or anything. This is part of why I was so agitated uh, when our sprinkler connector got stolen is I've been reading up on why Philadelphia was planned the way that it was. Penn witnessed this terrible destruction in London mm-hmm. and uh, getting a little ahead of ourselves um, really designed Pennsylvania's main city, Philadelphia, to avoid that. Right. We'll get into, we'll that, get into that in a second. Yeah. But the other thing that happened around about this year when he was age 22 is he came across Quakerism. And he was like, this is fucking awesome. I love this. I'm. This is me. I'm going to be this. Problem, Quakerism was extremely illegal, like pretty much right off the bat. I mean, and because of the, all of these radical ideas, right? So like you have an extremely hierarchical society that's governed by people who have been, you know, extremely polarized because of this religious conflict and in their minds, the way to control society is to imprison or put to death anyone who disagrees with them and to have a very rigid society so that everybody just fills their role in their class or their you know position in life and doesn't step outside of it and then we'll stop fighting. The Quaker's idea, of course, is no, 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 get rid of all of those things. Those are the reasons that we're fighting. So we need to have like a totally hierarchical, non-hierarchical society. This is a dangerous idea. In addition to this, Quakers were really into the idea of equality. I mean, this is part of that idea of no hierarchy, right? They said women should be able to preach. Women should be able to come to church and take an active part in society. Women can, in fact, you know, think for themselves and and handle money and uh, be educated and all of these sorts of things. And that was like extremely radical, an extremely radical idea. And they were like, also, we shouldn't ever go to war and be in the army. So immediately the king was like, you're all going to fucking jail. Yeah, I don't care if you're the son of one of the most important admirals in the British fleet. Uh, If you're a Quaker, you're going in the Tower of London. Right. So they did. They put they put Penn in jail for being a Quaker. Um, And dad was not happy. No, he, you know, obviously he didn't want this rabble-rousing kid running around. He had worked really hard, you know, (laughs) to give his son a nice life. 
Uh, he had friends in the king's court. Right. Yes. He was like buddies with Charles the First. Uh, sorry, Charles the Second and Charles's son, the Duke of York, who would later become James the Second. He was in some part very good buddies with him because when he was fighting in the war, Admiral Penn was paying for the soldiers' food and the soldiers' supplies. Um, But he wasn't doing it out of the kindness of his heart. It was actually a debt incurred. So the crown now owed Admiral Penn uh, the money that he had fronted during the war. So Penn was trying to send his son on the straight and narrow. He he sent him out to get educated. He was really doing a lot to try and point him away from this this radical Quakerism. But as the admiral got older and um, really close to his death, he had a, a bit of a change of heart uh, towards his son's beliefs. And while William Penn was imprisoned, the admiral negotiated for Penn's release from prison. Well, that's nice of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to have, like, your son and heir in prison. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I guess it's, you know, he didn't just disown him and leave him there to rut, I guess. Yeah. Um. (laughs) I I mean, maybe he had seen, you know, enough war uh, and and he's starting to uh, see the tide turn. Maybe. Um, But then he dies. Yeah, he dies. In 1670. And William Penn is left this enormous fortune from Admiral Penn. On paper. On paper. (laughs) One of the things that he does with this fortune is he buys a little bit of land in New Jersey, what is now New Jersey in America. And he kind of started a little Quaker colony. Yeah. uh, And not only did he start this colony, he ventured out into Europe. He started proselytizing. Uh, He particularly spent a lot of time in Germany convincing uh, Germans and Quakers to buy in on this sort of utopia idea that he has. Right. Let's move to this new world. Yeah, Europe is shit, right? Europe is garbage. We've just been fighting. This war has completely destroyed, you know, whole areas of Europe. But there's this place called the New World that is beautiful and untouched except by the Native Americans who live there. And we can go and start new lives and start completely fresh. So getting a, really getting into it, this little tract of land wasn't really enough. Right. Uh, Penn wanted more. And uh, unfortunately, the money that he was owed was not something that the crown could really come up with. Right. Quickly. The crown had didn't have like a ton of cash. Turns out when you go to war, you don't <laughs> always come out with money at the yeah. other side. Hmm. Hmm. You just <laughs> end up with like a ton of debt. That also seems like something relevant to modern day, but you know, let's just <laughs> gloss over that for now. Um so in 1680 Penn petitions the king. He's come up with this idea. Really, the king and Penn kind of nut out this idea together because it's something that is beneficial to all sides. The king hates the Quakers because the Quakers are causing all of these political problems. Um, They disagree with too much of what's going on in society. And if too many people get into Quakerism, it's really going to upset the wagon. So Penn says, why don't you... Give me a ton of land in the new world and I'll take all of these Quakers who are bugging the shit out of you and we'll go over there and we'll stay out of your hair and you'll stay out of our hair and then my debt, your debt to me, will be paid off in land, in new world land. And the king says, yeah, okay. 
one of the weirder historic events out there is um, the king just gives William Penn this huge tract of land, the largest amount of privately owned land at the time. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I think speaks to how much of a contribution William Penn's father had given uh, in the previous wars. And also, I think maybe, like, how little Charles II really cared about the colony. I don't know. You yeah, know. everything was kind of a mess. Yeah. It, <laughs> um, well, this deal was known as the Penn Charter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we may talk, we talk about the Penn Charter being the beginning of Pennsylvania, and this happened in 1681. Interestingly, there was like some argument about what to call the land that was given to Penn, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, Penn, in a truly English fashion, uh, wanted to just call it New Wales. <sighs> I mean, there's this stupid <laughs> thing, right? That I'm just like, why are British people so bad at naming new territory? Like, can they not come up with some original fucking names? Like, I remember when Melissa first moved over here. Uh, and we were in York County, living in Shrewsbury, right uh, next to Lancaster. Like, yeah, and it's I was pronounced like, Lancaster in Pennsylvania yeah. for those out, outside that's of our right. area. That's, that's how that's you tell. Actually, a, a central a Pennsylvania <laughs> pronunciation of Lancaster. You don't say Lancaster as as you would, you know, in Britain. But I was like York and Lancaster. Are you kidding me? Am I living <laughs> in like Henry the Sixth right now? What is happening? Okay, this from somebody who uh, grew up uh, or spent a lot of time, at least in New South Wales. Yeah, New South Wales in in New South Wales in in Australia. Um, there's this great sketch by the comedians Mitchell and Webb. They're a British uh, sketch comedy team, which is about explorers naming places, and it just demonstrates. It's exactly I love this sketch so much because it's exactly how <laughs> stupid the naming convention is. Where like. I don't know, they have this sketch where I think it's like Captain Cook lands in Botany Bay and is like, what am I going to call this place? You know what it reminds me of? Of Wales. And not just Wales, but South Wales. And his first mate is looking at him like, are you fucking serious? He's like, doesn't look anything like Wales. And then Captain Cook is like, I'm sorry, who's the captain here? <laughs> and so it gets named New South Wales, even though it looks nothing like South Wales. So Penn wanted to call Pennsylvania New Wales for the same... Same like, impulse. Same, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, although he did have an alternate thing. Uh, he, he was like, how about Sylvania? I hear there's lots of trees there. Right, Sylvania, meaning the woods, you know, in Latin. Yeah, uh, and that, uh, that was better. Um, but the king said, you know what? We can't just name it Sylvania because this is really something your father put together. We're going to call this Pennsylvania. Which is... Not what Penn actually wanted, and it kind of created some conflicts between him and other Quakers, and him and his own Quaker beliefs, because, of course, as I said, in Quaker beliefs, there shouldn't be, like, a hierarchy where one person is extremely important. And other Quakers were actually looking at this whole Penn deal and going, well, why is Penn the leader? I thought our religion was about not having leaders like that. But a king's charter is a king's charter. So if it says Pennsylvania on the charter, that's just what the land is going to be called. It's going to be Pennsylvania. Quick sidebar. Uh, I was in jury duty years ago and uh, a guy next to me, he was probably in his late fifties, uh, told me that Pennsylvania uh, was actually an Indian word. Uh, Sylvania was Indian. Uh, mm. And then Penn himself put his name in front of that. Um, I had to explain to him uh, that uh, it was actually Latin uh, Penn didn't want his name in front of that, but this is something he had learned 
uh, when he was in elementary school and he had just not had any refreshers since elementary school. Oh, and good. went through the decades believing that. So if this is uh, an early primer on Pennsylvania for you and we get anything wrong, apologies to your 60-year-old self when you uh, get caught out in what ends up being a mistake. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do actually want to take a second to... to um to qualify this episode <laughs> is, um, I'm not a professional historian and <laughs> I'm not even an amateur historian. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm, um, we have our own things that we're experts in and it's not actually history. We are interested in history. And I guess in Dunning Kruger fashion, we know just enough about history to know that we don't know everything or even enough about history. So we do know enough that we don't think we're like the be all experts in this. So if you're listening to this podcast, expecting like a very accurate, including all aspects of Pennsylvania history, um, which you're not because this is not a history podcast until this moment. Um, that's a different podcast. If you want something that has like a ton of footnotes that you can go explore for yourselves at the end of the podcast, that's a different podcast. This is just the story of why um, why we're here and why we're going to name our theater what we're going to name it. Yeah. After digging up these artifacts, we just kind of fell into this research hole. Yeah. Uh, it really becomes interesting when you've put your hands on something that somebody last touched in the 1770s. Right. And here's the thing. Um, like most of Philadelphia, uh, the history of uh, European settlement on this land begins with the Penn Charter. So our property in particular was part of the Penn Charter and actually remained a part of the land that was owned by the Penn family for a really long time, as we'll sort of get into. It's interesting that you said owned land. Uh, if you remember, which I hope you do, because it was maybe 30 minutes ago that we talked about <laughs> this, um, when the Dutch showed up they they claimed ownership over the land and got into a, a, a bit of a tiff right <laughs> uh when Penn arrived this had been decades later at mm. this point yeah about 50 years later what Penn did that was very different from any of the other colonizers in part because of his quaker beliefs is he approached the lenny lenape and asked to purchase land from them right he came at them in a very different way to most white colonizers of the new world. He he was peaceful. Right. He uh, tried to learn their language. When they talk about him meeting with them for the famous Penn Treaty, uh, they talk about him dancing with them because they're dancing, even though he's not a dancer. Right. Even though technically Quakers aren't supposed to dance. <laughs> <laughs> he's <laughs> like, the oh, time. these are the people that are here. Right. These are their customs. This is their culture. I'm going to respect that. If you look at plans of other cities in the quote-unquote new world, you're always going to see walls and, and uh, just barriers around the, 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 the frontier. Defensive barriers. Yeah, um, because they go in, they make a beachhead, and, and they really uh, attack those around them. Penn took this other approach where he actually, it, it worked out really nicely. He didn't have to spend all that money on building walls. Right, useless, instead. Useless walls. Useless walls. <laughs> I feel like there are also some <laughs> some ramifications in today's world. Um, anyway, so Penn instead went to the leaders of the Lenni Lenape tribe and basically offered to 
purchase land from them to do a deal to give them a bunch of his own money because you know the king technically had said this is your land but Penn realized that there were already people on the land and wanted to compensate them for that and figured out something that was fair for them and said we don't want to you know completely kick you out of this area we want to coexist with you as neighbors and friends Yes, uh, and uh, if you read up about Chief Tamanend and the uh, Lenny Lenape, there's a lot of things that they had established in their own society uh, that uh, it seems like influenced William Penn hmm. in his own choices in establishing this free uh, and, and more open society uh, that uh, would become Philadelphia. Right. I do want to also say though that it's not like Penn was the you know the most incredible white man who ever lived or anything <laughs> he uh he was a rich guy from an extremely rich family but really part of his whole venture in Pennsylvania was he knew he could get even richer like Pennsylvania was not just an idealistic you know utopian settlement it was also a way for him to make money and Penn also owned slaves or enslaved people. Um, you know, you might want to say, oh, but, you know, everybody was enslaving people at this time. But actually, that's not that's not strictly true. The Quakers in particular already by this time were looking at slavery as something that was immoral because it was inherently violent and their whole philosophy was centered around an idea of radical nonviolence. But Penn was not buying into that idea, I think, largely in part because it made him money. He, he made some big steps. He made some baby steps and uh, yeah. he uh, missed some cues. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of leaders of colonies in America, he was certainly pretty unique in his attitude towards the the indigenous inhabitants, the First Peoples. And also unique was his plan for designing the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, when he first learned of uh, the land that uh, he had he'd come into, he sent over a surveyor to plan out what the city would be. And uh, having survived this terrible fire in London where everything was too close together, uh, the streets are just a total mess. There's no green spaces. Yeah, he did something completely new with Philadelphia, which was going to be sort of the capital city of this new colony. He had the city designed as a grid, as a city of homes, so that in his ideal vision of what the city is, everybody would be in a brick house, mm -hmm. which is, you know, fire retardant. Right. Brick or stone mm -hmm. house. You'd have yards around the houses. Mm -hmm. uh, to act as fire breaks between the houses. Yep. And uh, the grid system would be uh, numbered with uh, other street names so that it's very easy to find where you're going in this city. Mm -hmm. And there would be a set aside specific squares that didn't have any buildings on them. Oh, he so. loved public spaces, mm -hmm. actually. The public squares and even public access 
to the river. Mm-hmm. At this time, everybody that's coming over to uh, the, the quote unquote new world uh, from Europe are these corporations or these uh, otherwise well to do already have uh, everything and they want more. Mm. Um, he's got this idea that, you know what, everybody should have public access to this. Everybody deserves a chance. Right. Again, this is an extension, I guess you could say, of the influence of Quakerism's philosophy on his own personal beliefs. So during this whole period where Penn is founding the colony of Pennsylvania, Penn also has a family. He is married to a lovely woman who, by all reports, he is madly in love with called Gulielma Springett Penn. Springett is a maiden name. She has eight children with Penn. Well, she gives birth to eight babies. Only two of them survive to adulthood. And uh, you'll find, as we talk about this period of history, this is extremely common amongst people at this time. You know, it's funny. Um, I saw that movie, The Witch, last year, and I, I fucking love that movie so much. I love all of the historical accuracy in it. And They actually did their research they and did, stuck to it yes it was so great i fucking love that movie so much i've just uh thomas and forever um but the one thing in that movie that i was like this is not actually accurate is <laughs> that the none of the bait none the, this family living out in the woods had like twins and thomason and another boy and they didn't seem to have had any children die previous to the events in the witch and i'm like mm. That's bullshit. (laughs) That is bullshit. This family had like a ton of baby deaths before. Like, there's just no way. I'm sorry. What? You gave birth to twins and they are like just totally healthy and running around the farm and like all of these other. No, this is not happening because it was way more common for people to have a ton of babies and only a few of them to survive to puberty. Mm -hmm. Right. So the two kids that Guglielma have who survived to puberty are Letitia, her daughter, and William Jr., the son, who is a little shit. <laughs> like, just, we'll talk about him a little bit more, um, but I am 100% convinced that this is like the worst case scenario rich bro trust fund kid with a fucking silver spoon in his mouth and up his ass and just an awful person. You know how it goes a couple of different ways when when you get somebody who inherits a bunch of money and doesn't have to work for it. In this case, William Penn was the trustafarian uh, and his son ends up being like Don Jr. (laughs) Um, Exactly, right? Yeah, because yeah, William Penn is totally like a hippie oh, yeah. to his parents, right? We're, we're going to move to this place. We'll have a perfect world. Right. I'm going to buy this whole colony and turn it into an ashram. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, so true. So, never so mind true. The, the administration of it. Yeah. Like, yes. Um, which, okay. Wait, wait, wait. So we're going to get into this thing. Yeah. So, so in 1694, his wife, Guglielma, passes away, which is very tragic for Penn. Two years later, he decides he has to get married again. So this is in 1696. And the person that he meets, it's kind of an arranged thing. Her name is Hannah Callowhill. So a little bit of information I need to introduce you to her because I'm fucking... I'm fucking obsessed with Hannah Callowhill Penn. Um, She was born in 1671... 
So when she meets William Penn, she is 25 years old. Uh, William Penn is 54, so she's less than half his age. But again, that's not hugely unusual. She's at least not 14. That's true. Uh, Standards. Okay. Um, But here's her life situation. She lives in Bristol. Her dad is a draper, which I find really interesting because Hillary Clinton's dad is also a draper. It's totally just a dumb coincidence, but I just find that really interesting, as you'll see as we go on with this story. Her mother, Hannah, had seven kids and ha- and Hannah Jr., I guess you could say. Isn't it kind of nice that the daughter was named after the mom? Like, this is not a thing that even happens anymore, right? Like, sons get named after dads, mm. but daughters never get named after moms. Unless you're Italian. Oh, well, you know. Okay, anyway, so Hannah's the only one who survives of seven kids. She's the She's it. And because she's a Quaker, and Quakers, as we mentioned, are into equality, which means they're into educating their daughters and letting their daughters take leadership positions, her dad teaches her how to run the drapery business. So by the time she's an adult, Hannah is doing all the books and running this extremely successful drapery business. It was so successful that actually the Callow Hills were fairly well off, were actually very well off in Bristol. Certainly well off enough to uh, attract the eye of William Penn. Right. William Penn needed two things in a wife. He needed someone who had money of her own. And he needed someone who had a business head and could help him with administrative tasks. And this is because William Penn, like a lot of people who are born rich and then go off on their little hippie thing had no fucking clue how to manage money. In fact, he was fucking terrible at it. (laughs) Not just money, his business. Yeah. Uh, I I learned while we were just researching this, I've never heard this before, his practically his best friend, shortly after he signed the Penn Charter, after he got this land, his best friend had him sign a thing that he didn't even look at that turned over ownership of his brand new colony to this best friend. So the best friend, yeah, like embezzled a shit ton of money from the colony. And William had this habit of not reading things that he signed. So his best friend who was helping him manage the business would just put forms in front of him and be like, sign this, sign this. And Penn was like, okay. And he signed a, a thing. That he, he signed a deed. A he, deed. There you are. Uh, his, his, his buddy then springs on him that uh, actually I own the land that your whole colony's on and you owe me rent. Right. And then when this buddy died, his widow is going through his papers and finds this paper and realizes that Penn owes them all of this money. Like all of the Pennsylvania colony should be hers. Right. And she takes Penn to court and gets Penn thrown in debtor's prison because, of course, Penn can't pay any of this money. And then the king sees that Penn is in prison. And this is James II by this point. And the king says, wait, wait, what's going on here? Why is my buddy in prison? And when it's all explained to the king, the king is like, oh, fuck this, takes Penn out of prison and gives the Pennsylvania colony back to Penn. So it's like this deus ex machina, you know. Penn, prison, prison privilege 
it's just like, yeah, he's like he, hey, yeah. wait your dad told me to take care of you and you signed away your entire colony wait, to somebody's goddamn fuck up all, all right, right all right I'll reset reset yeah yeah don't worry <laughs> i got this you fucking idiot yeah so <laughs> basically what i'm saying is by the time hannah comes along Penn has severe money problems. He's basically been spending money like water. He has no idea how to run his colony's books. He really doesn't want to get into like the nitty gritty management work that is 100% necessary for running a colony of this size. <laughs> um, so he marries Hannah in part because she fucking knows what's up. She's got a head on her shoulders and she knows how to do this. So yeah, she's 25. He knocks her up on the ship on the way to Pennsylvania and she has her first son, John, in Philadelphia. He is known thereafter as John the American. When he and Hannah arrived in Philadelphia, it was uh, only his second time being there. The, the city that he had planned out as being this spacious set of homes on wide lots. <laughs> With totally Quaker principles. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> was full of pubs. Uh, the buildings were all crowding around the waterfront instead of extending across from river to river. Right. I mean, of course, people, when you go away, are going to subdivide the land and rent out underneath you. Right. Um, but all of this makes them aware of the fact that they really need to start paying more attention. So they head back to England. Yeah, they go back to England. And, uh, and this is when things sort of take a turn for the worse for Penn. But... Um, this is really the crux of Hannah's part of the story. Right. In 1712, when Penn was 68 years old, you know, if you if you made it past puberty and if you're a woman, if you make it past your childbearing years, you have a pretty good chance of living into old age, like ripe old age uh, at this time, which I think is kind of interesting. But anyway, at 68 years old, Penn has a stroke. And it's a bad one. He's left essentially an invalid. He can't speak. He has memory trouble. And uh, he's basically has to be taken care of all the time. So he can't run his colony, right? Worse than before. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, by this time, Hannah was really the one who was doing most of the business of running this colony. Right. Um, because she, as I mentioned, was a good businesswoman and she was willing to do the grunt administrative work. Um, so she was running the colony anyway. After he became an invalid, after this stroke, she became the acting or de facto proprietor of the Pennsylvania colony. So so Penn's official title as the leader of the colony was proprietor of the colony. After a stroke, Hannah is acting proprietor. And she retains this role going forward. Penn dies in 1718. I think he has a second stroke. He leaves Hannah the proprietorship in his will. She becomes like the sole executrix. That's a weird word, but that's the correct word, isn't it? Executrix of of his will. And she is the heir of the Pennsylvania colony. So she be, she retains the acting proprietorship. Oh, well, here comes that asshole kid. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, so William Jr. from Penn's first marriage. Who has been kicked out of the army, kicked out of the navy. He, just tr- he tried to get into politics and basically held...
helped bankrupt his dad because he got into a ton of debt, like 10,000 pounds debt, which, you know, in the 1700s, it's like an insane amount of debt. And his dad paid off his debt to like help keep his kid out of jail. He's out there doing stupid stuff like looking for sunken treasure. Like he's just an idiot. <laughs> he's just an, and he's, um, so at one point before Penn had his stroke, William Jr. was raising so much hell that Penn was like, all right, I'm going to send you to Pennsylvania. Maybe if I send you from England to Pennsylvania, you'll like get your fucking act together because maybe you need some hard work and a new life and to get away from these shitty friends that you have. So he sent him on the boat to Philadelphia where William just continued immediately to raise hell and find the people in town that he could like be a rich little shit with, right? And he's getting drunk, he and his buddy, uh, they actually go so far as to beat up a cop. <laughs> like, he's, <laughs> he's really just a total turd of a human being. It's just, just, you know, exactly <laughs> that, right? Um, and the other thing is that William Penn Jr. clearly hated his stepmom. Hannah, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably, and this isn't that uncommon, I mean, um, Hannah was only 10 years older than William Jr. So I'm sure there was like a weird thing for William Jr. of like the young, you know, stepmom replacing his mother that he probably loved very much. But also he was just like kind of a asshole. So, you know, whatever. He hated his stepmom. Right. He really rescinded all the Quaker stuff he was raised with and he's getting back into this patriarchal society of England and I'm sure he's telling all his buds like, oh, once my dad dies, I'm going to get all his money. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. He totally seemed to reject everything about Mm -hmm. Quakerism. Like, Like we said, he was like in the army and the navy and, you know, doing all this shit. Anyway, so when Penn dies... And he hears that his stepmom is retaining the proprietorship of the colony. He is like, fuck you, I'm taking you to court and I'm going to get the will declared invalid and I'm going to take the proprietorship away from you. Which is crazy because William Jr. wouldn't, would like, would He's not never, doing anything. Right, he He's would just never fully have, entitled. have had that responsibility, you know, have have been able to lead the colony effectively like it's he had he wouldn't have done the work that she was doing it's like he just wanted to sell it yeah just a rich person who just kind of wants to be the leader of a place but has no interest in being a good leader or doing any work and just wants to like play golf and hang out at rich pl- <sighs> okay anyway um, <laughs> so he takes his stepmother to court and fights her in this protracted legal battle. And she fights back. In the middle of the court trial in 1720, so this is a couple of years after uh, William Penn Sr. dies, William Penn Jr. also dies. Maybe it's because he led a fucking, you know, uh, rabble-rousing life where he's, like, drinking all the time and getting into fights. I don't know. Uh, it, it apparently was tuberculosis. Oh. He didn't even have the option to be anti-vax back then, but I bet he would have been. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he dies, but he has also infected his son, uh, Springit Penn. You'll re- recognize the Springit from Guglielma Springit's maiden name. 
he's infected his son Spring at Penn with this idea that women shouldn't be allowed to be leaders and this land is his birthright. So his son Springett continues the court case against step-grandma now. And it goes on a little bit longer. Um, in the middle of it all, Hannah actually, from the stress, has a stroke herself, but she recovers from the stroke because she's fucking badass, right? And um, she goes on to win the court case against her son, uh, her stepson slash step-grandson and retains the acting proprietorship of the colony of Pennsylvania until her death in 1726. Okay, I'm doing this rant. I'm doing a rant again. I do a rant like every goddamn episode. From 1712 to 1726, 14 fucking years, this woman ran the colony of Pennsylvania, was the acting proprietor of the colony of Pennsylvania. Essentially, she was America's first female governor of the colony for 14 years in the beginning of the 1700s. I mean, just think about that for half a minute, right? And she has been almost completely forgotten by history. The only thing that remains of her name in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, in the world, really, is the street that runs through Philadelphia, which our building is on, and which is called Callow Hill Street after her. And uh, it was named that because after she died, her three surviving sons uh, by Penn, John, Thomas, and Richard, um, they became the proprietaries of the colony of Pennsylvania after she died. And they named this street after her to honor their mother. But here's the crazy thing. Like almost immediately, as soon as she died, her name starts getting written out of history by the shitty male historians who write the history of America. It's entirely possible that even the sons, though they named a street after her, probably just sort of downplayed this aspect of it. Right. I mean, uh, even though William Penn Jr. was was a massive turd, uh, these three had their own problems. Yeah. Uh, they, they went back on the treaty that uh, their father had signed. With uh, the Lenny Lenape. And um, just... They were not great sons either. I mean, I sort of... I think there's an argument to be made here that, like, if you grow up extremely rich and powerful, it's very difficult not to become a shitty person. Like, <laughs> I don't know what the cure is there because this is sort of, you know, it's not a problem I'm ever going to have. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, there's just... This seems to be kind of a correlation there. But to your point, yeah, um, yeah it's there's very little known about Hannah Callow Hill Penn. Right. There um, are only a couple of uh, pictures of what she looks like. We'll literally two. Yeah, two pictures, which we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but, like, there is a, a pamphlet that was published in 1868, which you can find on the Library of Congress website, by one John H. Campbell. I don't know who he is. I assume he's, you know, one of these terrible 19th century historians. All the document is, um, is a list of proprietaries and governors of Pennsylvania. And you can see under the proprietary government, it says William Penn proprietary, and it gives his dates, which are... 1681 to 1693. There's a little gap where the Crown of England uh, apparently has it again. 
uh, and then William Penn takes over again in 1695 to 1718. Right, which is when he died, right? But mm-hmm. actually the last six years of that part, he wasn't really in charge because he had had a stroke and couldn't speak or you know do any of the tasks necessary to be leader. And then it lists John, Thomas, and Richard, his sons by Hannah. But interestingly... No date. It doesn't say the date that they started because there is this weird little eight-year gap there and there is no mention of Hannah whatsoever. I mean, this is just infuriating. And almost any list of the leaders of Pennsylvania, it's the same deal. You won't see Hannah's name on it even though she was the one who was fucking in charge. She was doing it. She was running the colony. I'm so angry about this. I'm so, so angry about this. Um... Interestingly, as we get into like the present day. Yeah. Uh, as we were doing this research, uh, this would have been in like 2015. Right. So around about the time we bought the theater. Yeah. Um, I actually was getting local news stories uh, in, in, well, I, I say local. There were news stories in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. There had just been uh, an election mm-hmm. um, for governor and uh, Tom Corbett, boo. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Corbett was the outgoing governor. Yeah. He was a Republican and uh, he, you know, we disagreed with most of his policies. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, And he was uh, a a Democrat, Tom Wolf, who uh, was from York County, like myself, uh, was coming in. And and we supported him. You know, we liked the sound of his policies. Right. But Tom Corbett's wife, Susan, pushed to have Hannah Callowhill Penn's portrait placed amongst the portraits of all the other governors of Pennsylvania in the governor's office. Right. So, you know, governor's office is this beautiful room in the Capitol building in in Harrisburg. We used to live in Harrisburg, so we've been in there a bunch of times. It is one of the most opulent uh, capital buildings, state capital buildings in the country, in large part because Pennsylvania had a ton of steel and coal money when it was built. And there's a beautiful room in it that's the governor's office that has portraits of all of the governors of Pennsylvania. And so Susan Corbett worked with uh, an artist, Ellen Cooper, mm-hmm. um, who then did a tremendous amount of research because, as we mentioned, there are only two known portraits of Hannah. Right. One of them when she's sort of middle-aged and one when she seems, she looks kind of elderly mm-hmm. in in the uh, oil portrait one. So one of the last things Tom Corbett does as he's leaving office is he actually hangs that portrait in the governor's office. Which I think is fucking cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm conflicted. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I feel like... I feel like this was the first time I had heard about Hannah Callahill was mm-hmm. when that portrait was hung on the wall for the first time. There was an article and I read about her and I was like, what the fuck? How have I never heard of this woman? That's kind of amazing. Thank you, Tom Corbett, whose yeah. policies I didn't agree with at all for doing this one thing. So then within two months of Tom Wolf taking office, the portrait is removed from the governor's office. He takes it down and puts it in a storage warehouse of the Pennsylvania State Museum. It's not climate controlled. It's not in public view. I have such trouble understanding why this happened. One of the theories out there is, you know, oh, it was something that Tom Corbett did 
So, you know, anything that the previous governor does is wiped out by the incoming governor as kind of a fuck you to the party that's just out of power, which is interesting because this is sort of tying back to the wars between the Catholics and the Protestants and how like ridiculous that goes where the power switches from Protestant to Catholic and it's like open season on the Protestants and vice versa. And this is kind of this on a very small scale, but who gets lost in the mix? Hannah Callahill once again removed from the record. <laughs> and I personally loved uh, just the ridiculousness of the conservative press all of a sudden being very, very concerned uh, that that's Democrat in this era, if you, you know, leading up to the 2016 election. Right. Uh, this is a perfect opportunity to nail one of these new Democrats for obviously not caring about women like we do. Right. Which is just, <laughs> yeah. But then, I mean, part of me is like, yeah, uh, why would someone who professes to be a progressive, you know, left-leaning person try to erase a really important part of feminist history? So the good news is, um, because we found this, uh, we actually reached out. I, I contacted Ellen Cooper, let her know. She didn't realize that this had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she put us in touch with a woman named uh, Elaine Pedden, uh, who is known as the Pen Lady. Who is like a walking encyclopedia of information about William and Hannah Penn to the point where in the 1980s... <laughs> she managed to get Ronald Reagan to um, designate Hannah and William Penn as honorary American citizens. Um, <laughs> this is because she would go to William Penn's grave and try to put an American flag on it. In the UK. And they would be like, you can't do that. <laughs> What are you doing? Like he's he's he's, he's not British. American. He's right. British. <laughs> he died before America was a thing. <laughs> and Elaine was like, "I am going to put an American flag on this grave." Right. And so she this- petitioned her senators, her Congress mm-hmm. people. She we uh, were introduced to Elaine through Ellen and heard this whole story. I'm going too far into it, but she made them American citizens, and now she can put an American flag on William Penn's Well grave. done, Elaine. She wanted to do a thing, and she got totally obsessed with doing it, and it took her years and more effort than you can even imagine, and she fucking did it. Yes. And it took even less time for them to get that painting out of storage once Elaine was on the job. <laughs> Uh, we heard shortly thereafter uh, that it had been moved into, I think, the State Museum. Right. It's now on display. We actually haven't seen it in person. One of these days we should do a trip back yeah, up to Harrisburg. It's like we'll, we've been busy with something. Yeah, who knew? Um, but, uh, yeah, so well done. Although I personally think that it should be in the governor's office. Where, where it belongs. Where, right. It was originally commissioned to be the same size as the other portraits in the governor's office so that it would fit into that office. And I personally think that it should be there. It pisses me off that it's not where it was intended to be. Anyway, in 2014... When we signed the agreement of sale, we're going back to our first episode here, right after we signed the agreement of sale and it started feeling like this whole thing was going to become a reality. One of the first decisions I wanted to make between Matt and me was what are we going to name this building? What are we going to name the theater? And we were coming up with wholly inappropriate names, we were coming <laughs> up with dumb names. Yeah. Um, but then Melissa suggested... Why not name it after Hannah Callerhill? 
Um, and keep in mind, this was way before we found these or even knew that there was the possibility that there would be artifacts underneath this building. We had found a deed that went back to 1741, but we had no idea how much history would come out of this building. But we just thought, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, this property used to be part of the Penn Charter. And then, you know, in 1741, uh, it passed for the first time to someone else. And I was like, wait a second, Hannah Callowhill Penn is part of that Penn Charter. She was technically in the Penn family that owned this property and managed this property. Why don't we name it after her? And we're on Callowhill Street. Yeah, I love the idea that it would kind of imbue this historic feeling to a building that we didn't know how old it was at the time. I had no idea what we were about to get into <laughs> and realized that maybe we didn't need to fake being historical. <laughs> but, I mean... More than anything, for me, this is a way of putting Hannah Callahill's name back on the map. Because if you ask Philadelphians who or what Callowhill Street was named after, and Callowhill Street is a long street. It runs like the entire width of Center City. If you ask them why is it called Callowhill Street, 99 out of 100, I'm guessing, will have absolutely no idea. Nobody knows Hannah Callowhill's name. They think that Callowhill Street was named after a hill. They don't know that she was a person, and they certainly don't know that she fucking led the colony for 14 years and was essentially America's first female governor. They don't know this information. This pisses me off. My thought is, if I call the theater the Hannah Callowhill stage, and I decided on stage because I don't want it to be thought of as just a theater that does theater shows, because we're going to do a whole bunch of different things in here, hopefully. Um, if we call it the Hannah Callowhill stage, then people will go, oh, Hannah Callowhill must have been a real person. She must have loved theater. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Quakers kind of didn't like theater. <laughs> but also, Hannah, being a fairly wealthy uh, woman, she kind of bent the rules in Quakerism a little bit. Like, you'll, you'll see entries in her letters where she talks about, like, she found a pretty orange scarf, which is totally against Quaker uh, principles of very plain dress. Um, so I sort of think... You know, the theater might not have been 100% a bad thing back then. And certainly Quakerism has evolved and changed over the years so that I know many Quakers who are actively involved in the performing arts. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> For those of you outside Philadelphia, you may not realize. Uh, I, I even in Central PA, I didn't even know that Quakers were still a thing. It's um, still a huge thing. If you go out into the suburbs of Philadelphia, Bryn Mawr College was founded by Quakers. In fact, there are a ton of like schools and universities around America. That also, Bryn Mawr is a fake name. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fake Welsh name to make it sound fancy. That happened later, but that's hilarious to me. <laughs> there were a lot of Welsh Quakers, and in fact, we'll talk a little bit about Welsh Quakers in an upcoming episode, because that gets important. Um, but, you know, Penn specifically set aside a section of the suburbs outside of Philadelphia as kind of the Welsh Quaker area. Um, and, you know, because Quakers are really into education, they set up 
colleges there. And as I was saying, there are universities all over America that have Quaker roots. I was just in Portland the other week, and there's a school there, George Fox University, that I immediately recognized the name of because I said George Fox was the founder of Quakerism. And the Portland Portland people, what do they call themselves? Portlandites, Portlanders, Portlanders, Portlanders. Um, they uh, they had no idea that it was a Quaker thing, but I was like, no, look it up, and totally, it was founded by Quakers. <laughs> so um, you know, the influence of Quakerism is found that way, but it's also found in Penn's legacy on American ideas and philosophy in general, right? Yeah, I mean, Thomas Jefferson once referred to William Penn as the greatest lawgiver the world has produced. Um, his influence on the ideals behind things like the Declaration of Independence and uh, the U.S. Constitution are undeniable. Right, and uh, Quakerism in general leans toward a democratic idea of things. So instead of sort of the traditional church service where there's a priest at the front telling everyone what's up, Everybody is allowed to speak if they want to. Um, so it's a much more democratically organized church. So that's a huge influence on American ideas of what democracy looks like and is. Of course, it wasn't perfect. Um, women were not allowed to vote in America for a really long time. <laughs> but we'll be talking a little bit more about Quakerism in upcoming episodes because there's more to this story and the history of it on our building. Yeah. So we just took a real deep dive into... Well, deep deep for a podcast, I guess. I deep for a podcast. Yeah, I mean, like I said... Well, we just went totally <laughs> off course from where you were three episodes ago... <laughs> Um, but this all comes back around in a huge way. Uh, and this isn't just bringing us up to naming the building. In the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about a Quaker who owned the building that we're in. In the next episode of The Bog House, Philadelphia's shady real estate developers are not a new thing. Angry political shitposts, the first American advertising jingle, and bricks older than American independence. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callahill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear. 